So, of course, it is October, and for most Americans, and let's face it, most people around the world nowadays, because we do like to export our cultural holidays and traditions, it is Halloween, and when we think of Halloween, we think of spooky things and ghosts. But what are ghosts? Are they real? Quite a few people seem to think that there is something to them. I myself am skeptical, but who the heck really knows? I sure don't. However, my guest might. He is Gary R. Simmons. He is an experienced neurosurgeon and a teacher at Virginia Tech. He teaches at the School of Medicine and the School of Neuroscience. Uh, he is an author who has written a whole bunch of stuff about neuroscience and uh, related things and has recently written a novel as well about a neurosurgeon who encounters ghosts. I can't think of a more fitting guest for this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Mr. Simmons, how are you today, sir? Uh, I am very good, and I very much appreciate you having me here today. Of course. Happy to have you. As usual, I'd like to thank everybody for listening to this episode of the podcast. I remind you for the millionth time that you can subscribe to the podcast. And if you like what we do, you can donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page, and you can review us especially useful is reviewing us on IMDb. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. So, Mr. Simmons, first let's talk a, a bit about you. You uh, studied biochemistry, then you went on to medical school, you got into uh, neurosurgery. You know, <laughs> what are you, a neurosurgeon? You actually are, which is quite exciting. Uh, and you've written quite a, a number of things. I know you contributed to the Thriving Neurosurgeon, published by World Neurosurgery, and um, a bunch of different articles on things that I don't really know what they are, like quantification of lumbar nerve root decompression, things like this, uh, things about fine motor dexterity and cognition, and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff about the human brain. Uh, well, yes, there are a lot of things that you have to get into when you're uh, in the neurosurgery side of the equation. I was uh, head of a neurosurgery department, and uh, that means you're overseeing a bunch of other neurosurgeons and neurosurgery trainees that we call residents. Uh, so there's almost no way to avoid uh, not getting into various uh, alleyways uh, and studies. But what really interested me, frankly, in the past 
15 years was the subject of burnout, burnout in healthcare providers. Uh, we started with burnout in neurosurgeons because I experienced it up front and saw it in all my colleagues and then branched out into uh, more physicians and then further out into all healthcare workers. And people suggested we should then should be addressing other industries, other professions. And we said, well, probably our expertise is going to stop there. So a lot of my writings, particularly in the last 15 years, have been oriented to the world of burnout and building resilience and building wellness, uh, hopefully in our providers, our healthcare providers, because it's awful hard to take care of patients to the best of your abilities if you yourself are deeply sagging. Right. Well, that's for sure. Physician, heal thyself, right? I mean, uh, you have to. Exactly. So, of course, like you said, uh, neurosurgery and, and the, the just neuroscience, it's a big field. It's a, it's a field that we don't know. We certainly don't know everything about the brain. We, we don't. I, I know there are a bunch of common misconceptions out there, you know, that certainly were handed down. I'm a Gen Xer, and uh, growing up, we all heard, you know, you only use 8% of your brain, which is not true at all. Uh, and uh, we, we actually store memory all over the brain in different patterns. And, and I myself spend quite a bit of time thinking about human perception. And one of the things that it occurs to me about uh, humans is uh, I often say that we are homo nerens. We are the storytellers. And one of the differences between us and animals is that we have language, which can be defined as able to talk about things that are not here, not now. And so you extend that into also able to talk about and conceive of hypotheticals. And I think very often in the conspiracy realm and the paranormal realm and all this, very often uh, that might be at least partly what's going on is that we think our brains work a certain way. We think our perceptual apparatus work a certain way that our eyes are cameras and our ears are recorders and our brains are computer hard drives when none of this is actually true at all and so we 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 don't understand that just the act of remembering something alters the memory for example we would never in a million years think think that's how our brain works but that is in fact how our brain works I mean, you make a number of critical points. Uh, the first one, the 8% business, I, I totally agree with you. I think there are uh, components of our society, particularly politicians, who probably only use 2%. But uh, no, in general, uh, all of our brain is going all of the time. How effectively and efficiently we're doing that uh, is up for debate. But we use our entire brain all the time and it's going nonstop. That's one key point there. I think another one that I really resonate with is I think a common misconception of the brain is that it's like a computer. It's very much like a computer. And in some ways it's true. It's a number of wires connected to other wires using some sort of binary code. You know, they either fire or they don't. But Unlike a computer, a computer, you kind of somewhere in some factory, they're putting all those microchips together and putting them, you know, connecting the microchips and have all these thousands and thousands of connections within the computer hard drive. 
And indeed, in the brain, we have lots of wires that are connected. In fact, there's billions. We're never sure exactly how many neurons there are, but somewhere in the 80 to 100 billion neurons, and each one connects with thousands of others. So there are quadrillions of connections. So, you know, you could say it's a supercomputer, it's just super connected up. But unlike a computer, it's kind of once that computer is made and shipped to you, that's what you've got. You can put in software and all that sort of thing. But basically, unless you put in a new hard drive, that is what you've got. And when you want more power, more ability, you just go get a new computer. With our brains, yes, all there is all these wiring and all these connections and all this binary code going on, but it is constantly changing, constantly changing all those connections. They're either upgrading or downgrading as we use them, as we exercise them, as we fire signals through them. And they're changing on multiple levels. They actually change their anatomy, how they connect with one another, but they also change all the way down to their biochemistry, meaning when one nerve cell releases neurotransmitters like, you know, dopamine is very uh, talked about nowadays. So you, you release dopamine to another neuron or you release serotonin or something like that. There are receptors on the other neuron that picks them up and you are constantly adjusting how many of those receptors you have, how well they do pick up neurochemicals, the neurotransmitters, how long those neurotransmitters stay out there before they get gobbled up. Uh, that's being changed all the time. And we're actually changing how our DNA is being read in those neurons. So the point being not to get too far in the weeds, the system is constantly changing constantly morphing through our experiences, through what we are experiencing and going through and thinking and people we interact with, the sights we see, the feelings that we have are constantly modifying this supercomputer that we're working with. And then as you, as you pointed out, the supercomputer kind of has its own way of dealing with the with the environment with the outside world it is not a one-to-one -one representation of what we're experiencing out there when we experience our environments we have all sorts of sensors that are picking it up but these sensors don't pick up everything for example we're not picking up ultraviolet or infrared light there is plenty of stuff that is not getting in there because our brain says to us, you know, we're somewhat simple creatures. What we're going to do is create a story about our environment, a story that we can function in, we can manipulate, we can change, we can alter, we can respond to. And if we, if we throw in everything, we're just going to overload the circuitry and you're not going to be able to function. So we create kind of a version of what the world is and what it feels like and what it should be. And when it's missing pieces, we actually just create them. Our, our brains will create pieces to the puzzle. And as you said, when we start storing memory, we will store pieces of our experience in various areas of the brain. So what it smelt like will go to one area. What we saw will go to another. What we heard will go to another. What we felt will go to another. And then when we call upon those memories, we have to piece it all back together and often it is not a one-to-one. -one. It's not a videotape of what happened. 
what may have been lost, what may have dissolved away, our, our brain will simply create. It will say, ah, oh, this seems to make sense. So let's put this into the equation. It's a fascinating thing. It's a fascinating study. And as you say, we are far, far, far away from understanding how it's all done and how it all works. I don't know if you if you could bear with me for another kind of quick example, uh, which is just something I stumbled upon recently, just talking to one of my sons, frankly. And we were talking about the inner voice, you know, the, the little voice in the back of our heads that says, don't do this, do this. Uh, are you stupid? Or, wow, you did a great job. Aren't you wonderful? Something that in science they tend to call the inner speech or inner dialogue or inner monologue. But we were talking about it and he was talking about how his partner in life doesn't have a, the same sort of inner voice or inner experience. He was saying that she tends to see thoughts as pictures and has very little dialogue. And I said, wait, that's crazy. You know, my my inner dialogue is there. It's constantly going. It seems to be in my voice or the voice that I hear when I read. Uh, and it's it's yabbering away at me all the time if I'm not focusing on something else. And even then it'll yabber at me. It tends to be very negative, tends to be critiquing me all the time. And he said, yeah, yeah, no, mine too. And my wife said, oh, no, well, I do have an inner voice, but it's not really a voice. I don't hear it. And yet I experience it as a language. And she said, oh, mine's kind of nice. I, yeah, we'll critique but, you know, most of the time it's just saying decent things or making lists of things that I have to get done or, or something like that. And I said, wait, oh, wait a minute. Let me. So I started sampling people and began to realize that this thing, this voice that I'd lived with now for 60, almost 67 years, that I assumed everybody else experienced the same way. They don't. They don't. It, and it just to me was a glowing example of how what we experience, what our reality is, is potentially different from person to person. And it makes sense because each of our brains are, are different because all those wirings I was talking about are all shaped and reshaped and changed through our many experiences. So it shouldn't come to a shock to me that Indeed, the way I perceive reality, the way reality comes into the system and the way it manipulates reality is going to be potentially vastly different from somebody else. So I'm going to throw back at you finally, Derek, sorry for the long monologue, uh, but I'm going to throw back at you. What's your inner voice like? Do you have one? It turns out that some scientists say that up to 30 or 40 percent of people don't even have an inner voice. Wow. I can't imagine that. I mean, either. I have one. It's quite... Um... I don't want to say aggressive, but it's um, it's uh, it's there and is there a lot. I would say mine is quasi-linguistic, quasi-pictorial, and quasi-spatial. I think of things generally in terms of spatial alignments and spatial configurations. So my brain creates almost, an almost like a shadowy 3D space. This is why I'm waiting for the computer interfaces like we saw in the movie Minority Report, because that's kind of how my brain works anyway. I need a holographic computer interface because that's that's the way that my stuff works. I think of a plot or I, even if I have to write, you know, I write blogs uh, about digital signage and organizational communications. 
And as I'm writing it, the words are coming, but they're being formed in this sort of quasi or even pre-linguistic way, if that makes any sense. Oh, it makes ultimate sense. And it, I mean, again, it just reinforces what, what I was saying. And I can't believe I went 67 years without discovering this. Uh, and there is there is some discussion of it out there in the literature, in the neuroscience literature. You know, there's not a lot of it. And it's just utterly shocking to me that this is happening, that we're ex experiencing it differently. Like with what you're describing, you would think a surgeon, that would be how I perceive the world. And it ain't. I, mine is very verbal. And so if I'm writing, for example, I'm writing something, I'm hearing my voice say the words and then I type it out. It's really fascinating when you start digging into it. But again, I just use that as an example that, you know, we're not all wired the same and our wiring changes and and we experience everything somewhat differently. Uh, it's been noted that even though we think we're experiencing the, let's call it external or material world, we're not. We're actually whatever the eye is, the seat of the eye somewhere in the brain, or if you're religious, I suppose you can think of a soul, is actually interacting with a model that the brain is creating. And so, I mean, to a certain extent, you can argue, you, you literally have no idea what the outside world even looks like <laughs> or, or what, it's, uh, what it's comprised of or anything because you're not really interacting with it. You're interacting with a model that your brain creates. And it's, on the one hand, yes, quite unique. Certainly, there are patterns uh, in the way that Homo sapiens sapiens uh, is structured and the different, the variety of ways that we can perceive things and, and uh, conceive of things. And yet, this is something maybe in our preteens, we would sit around the treehouse and go, how do I know that what I see as red is what you see as red? Maybe what you call red, I see as blue. And we all have those thoughts. And I, and I still, because I'm in the conspiracy sphere uh, a lot, and I end up dealing with uh, a lot of the conspiracy folks out there, they get into that mindset of like, well, so how do you know that that isn't true? And the answer is, is that red is red because the definition of red is this. And so that's what it is. I see a red hat. You call it a red hat. But I, you know what I mean? If I could see through your eyes, I wouldn't see what I would call a blue hat. It's a red hat. There are some things that are just fundamentally common among the way that all of us perceive things. Yes? No? Yeah. I, I mean, I think we can get philo highly philosophical about this and that indeed the way somebody is experiencing red or experiencing a tree before them may not be the exact same as you. If you could actually project what they're experiencing, they may be experiencing it somewhat differently. And yet we know that there are processes that go through the brain that are very similar from, from person to person. The areas of the brain that get engaged, the type of networking that gets engaged. The challenge is we only see it at a very 50,000 
foot uh, height uh, type of view. So when we talk about functional MRIs and tractography and stuff like that, we're just seeing huge bundles of neurons as opposed to all the way down to individual neurons and their connections. Um, and so for us to say, oh yeah, we all experience it the exact same way. There are, there are absolutes. Maybe that's a little bit of hubris on our part, but uh, the reality is there certainly has to be a story that most of us tell that allows us to function in this world and allows us to function with each other. Uh, and so there's got to be patterns and similarities no matter what, or else we wouldn't, you know, it would be just be total chaos if you think about it. Right. If I, if, if, if I'm looking at what I would consider a tree and if I could see it through your eyes, it's going to be pretty tree-like. It's not going to be a giant pile of hot dogs. Right. Or, or I'm looking at a tree and you're looking at it and saying, no, it's fog. You're going to walk into the tree and, and fall over. Right. Uh, so somehow we, there is, you know, there is a consistency in how we interpret our environment. Uh, and you can see that consistency go through various levels of animals. I mean, we, we do so much of neuroscience study on mice right and and yet we know that there are functions within a mouse's brain that are very similar to what's going on in our own brains and and so forth so obviously there is going to be a certain level of consistency that we're going to have to accept or we just can't function and you know i guess you can see an example of it where the reality to somebody has deviated well beyond that consistent pattern that most of us share. So somebody with a very bad psychosis who is experiencing reality in a totally different way or somebody somebody on some very potent mind-altering drug is experiencing reality in a different way, but they become dysfunctional. They, they cannot function in our environment. Uh, and so you can, you know, the wheels come off, right? If you're, if you're not using these similar patterns of in, interpretation and processing. Yeah, I, I always think of, uh, when I think about that, I think of um, people who claim to be targeted individuals, uh, which, you know, note to listeners, we uh, did a whole episode on uh, some time ago. And it's almost certainly schizophrenia. And it's weird that it very often, like so many people who are experiencing this particular type of schizophrenia have so many similarities. I mean, it kind of leads into Jung and this idea that maybe there are archetypal um, patterns uh, within the human organism uh, that we all sort of share to a certain extent. But, you know, it's always that, oh, there's some kind of machine. Now, granted, I'm sure in the 1400s they didn't think machine because there weren't any real machines. Uh, but certainly in the 19th century, when you get the first recorded instances of this, you know, you get this whole thing about the heirloom and the they're targeting my brain with these electrical signals. And like they are absolutely convinced it's almost like the internal version of the model that the brain is creating somehow becomes externalized in their minds, that the signals that are coming from within that, that interior narrative, suddenly something gets scrambled and it seems like those signals are coming from outside. And that's why they get this idea that they're being followed, that they're, 
they suddenly, you know, angels appeared and uh, and whisked them off to heaven, and so on and so forth. So it's almost like the the inside and the outside get twisted around and reversed. Yeah, and you can imagine how you know, frankly, easy that might be. At least in my brain, I'm generating this voice, right? I'm generating a voice that's talking to me all the all the time. So uh, why wouldn't I, couldn't I at some point externalize that, see that as an external source? Well, something in my brain is allowing me to differentiate it. But if that breaks down for some reason, well, then maybe I, I will experience that uh, as, as an external stimulus. And, you know, when you get into the neuroscience of th- this inner voice thing, and I've only just started looking into it because this was a recent discussion with my son. But uh, um, that is an interest there is uh, when you get into uh, uh, hallucinations, uh, schizophrenia, that sort of thing. Is that exactly what's happening? Are we somehow uh, switching the levers, if you will, and perceiving this as an external source? Because if you ca- if you talk to me from another room, I can't see you, and yet I know exactly that it's you know you're well what we're doing right now. You you are an external source, right? And I I know that there's no question about it. But that voice in my head I know is internal, but. Ha- I mean, they're they're routing through very similar routes in the brain, and what is what is helping us separate those two? Uh, I could see could easily be disrupted. Mm, sure. I mean, my wife and I, uh, because we share so many interests and we we work together and on a number of projects, very often she'll have come up with an idea for something, and I internalize it to such a degree that I then remember I remember saying it. And her reaction of, oh, yes, that's a great idea. When in fact, that is not what happened at all. I've just yet again stolen her mojo <laughs> and said, hey, I had this great idea. And she says, no, no, honey, uh, that was my idea. <laughs> you know, but I, that memory has been overwritten. Uh, I, I do not remember it that way at all. I have to just take her, take her word for it and hope she's not gaslighting me. Yeah, you know, 100% agree. Memory is awfully malleable. Um, And as we said, it's not like it's this packet that's stored somewhere in, in its perfect shape and size. It gets stored all over the place, just little traces of the experience. And then when you call on the memory, you got to weave it all back together. And there are there are certainly going to be pieces missing, which your brain will fill in for you. But then it's also therefore going to be subject to the power of suggestion. So if somebody says, you remember, you said that when we were you know, on the boat that afternoon, it becomes very easy to, to internalize that and say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. I did. I remember saying it on the boat. In fact, I remember the way the wind was blowing in my face. And, and that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yet none of that happened. Exactly. So more recently, you've uh, been thinking about the way that uh, the human uh, mind and the human brain, uh, which might in fact be two separate things, that's a whole other conversation, maybe the way that we interpret things could be sometimes what we call ghosts. And you even wrote a novel about, yes, a highly successful brain surgeon who then begins to encounter 
ghosts and spirits and dead people and so on and so forth and begins to wonder, am I going nuts or am I, am I experiencing something internal or something external? This is the question of your novel Death's Pale Flag, which just came out in June this year. How did that grow out of these, these, uh, these questions you've been asking? I've always found this uh, interface between science and we can call it the spiritual, we can call it religion, we can call it uh, the fantastical, whatever, uh, science and this other world, other universe, other existences, um, I've always found this fascinating, you know, particularly in the neuroscience realm where we have so much evidence of what the brain can generate. I think we could easily ascribe all interactions, all interfaces with a supernatural world or even a religious world as being the construct of our brains. It would be very easy to generate. And all you have to do is think about your dreams and what you're able to generate in your dreams. You can produce some really wild things that in no way are our reality you may never have even experienced them before and yet your brain just creates them for you to to have a, a midnight showing you know in in the back parts of your head yeah that's that's for sure i you know people often talk about um this this it's certainly a trope that writers use and, and i've met people who say that they have this recurring dreams uh the same dream or or kind of the same dream over and over again. I don't ever have that. I have recurring locations. Weird cities, spaces, buildings, rooms, neighborhoods, uh, forests. I'll have different dreams, but in that location. And, and I know that location. In the dream, I go, oh yeah, if we just go up here, there's a great cafe. And there is. <laughs> I do have recurring dreams. I'm in the middle of a, a brain operation. The brain is bleeding all over the place. I'm asking for equipment. They're not handing me the equipment. And I'm screaming at everybody in the room, you know, give me this, give me that, give me this. That one still comes. Uh, but yeah, so again, we we can generate some very realistic things. And as you say, even to the point where we know our way around, you know, this environment that we created. But in my world, there is a lot of just immediate uh, sense that everything else, anything else, religion, ghosts, the fantastical, even a soul. The idea of a soul, as you were talking about, some of that duality of mind and soul versus, you know, the physiology. There's a lot of uh, a lot of thought amongst uh, my ilk, the neuroscience world. That that that's all poppycock. That it absolutely is a production of these amazing machines that we have in our heads. And I've always called a little bit of foul on it simply because we just don't know. There's no way to absolutely know. We cannot prove something that, we, or we cannot disprove something that we can't prove or something like that. In other words- Yeah, you can't, you can't prove a negative. Right, exactly. And, and so I, we exercise a certain level of hubris in this just because we're so proud of, of how- uh, high and mighty we are with the organ that we work with, which it is a very special organ. So so it got the wheels turning. And I always wanted to write something about my world, the real world of neurosurgery. But I thought it would be more interesting 
and immersive for the reader if it was fictional. So the neurosurgery in the book is very on the mark. One critic said uh, that it was kind of a neurosurgery for dummies. And I hope it's not a neurosurgery for dummies, but... (laughs) Do not try this at home, folks. (laughs) (laughs) I, I wanted you to kind of feel what it was like to be in the middle of a brain that was bleeding and what the heck are you going to do with it? But, you know, I wanted to embed it in a fictional tale. It also has these threads of burnout and uh, workaholism, which uh, is something I've worked with and studied for years now. But I grew up in a family uh, of believers in ghosts. And my mother, my grandmother were Scottish. They are firm believers or were firm believers. They had many of their own experiences that they would relate with uh, the other side. Uh, My father was an absolute skeptic, but my mother and grandmother ghost tales all the time. So my mind started turning on the idea of, well, if there were ghosts, maybe they would see a brain surgeon as somebody who hangs around near to where they hang around because Brain surgeons are often on that dividing line, or we called it a bridge in the in the book between life and death, you know, with a lot of people passing in one direction and trying to pull back a few to the living side. And maybe if there were truly ghosts, they might be drawn to or might be it might just be easier for them to interact with somebody that they're familiar with, some physician or surgeon who's always there, always right there at the bridge. That's where I generated the story from and started playing with the idea and what would the ghosts want? Why would they be interacting and how would they interact? And went from there and I wanted the readers to be able to think about, well, could this be? Are these ghosts? Are they truly uh, the real thing? And what would they be there for? Are they all projections of his own mind that is clearly ailing? And then I wanted a corollary question to that, and that would be, what is actually scarier, this supernatural world or the natural world that he's living in where brains are exploding and people are coming in with awful diseases and aneurysms rupturing and tumors and stuff like that? Yeah, uh, that's the that's the interesting thing is that very often uh, you know, so many people we know uh, have some kind of ghost story. Uh, certainly, I think most of us, unless we grew up in Manhattan, and even in even in Manhattan, there are ghost stories aplenty. You know, I grew up in Sonoma County in Northern California, and there was the tale of the uh, the white la- we had a white lady, and we would do what's now known as legend tripping. Is of course, as teenagers, we would drive out there, and I think we all had that. This is why Stephen King, in his uh, when he when he's good, he really taps into that feeling that feeling of wonder because when you were a kid it's like there's so much you don't understand about how things work why not ghosts why not godzilla why not dragons why not you know all these things especially if it's part of your household mom and grandma talk about ghosts all the time you have no reason to be skeptical as a child Right. And uh, same could be said for religion, I suppose, you know, with a lot of a lot of families are inculcated into it. And yet, you know, uh, as we explore in the book, I mean, one of the questions is, would you would you let somebody operate on you who's seeing ghosts? You know, one of the things that gets discussed in the book is the fact that, I mean, basically whole nations believe in in things like ghosts. I mean, the British Isles are certainly very 
steeped in it, but we don't shut the nation down because of that. And certainly, you know, a sizable portion of our uh, of the world believes in one religion or another and and, you know, very deeply uh, may have had religious experiences, but we don't take them off the duty roster. Uh, We don't call them psychotic or anything like that. Again, trying to play with and explore that idea of that interface between science and the fantastical. And could there be out there or is it just all impossible? I'm afraid I I come out of it. People always, you know, ask me, well, okay, give me the answer. Are there ghosts or not? And I'm like, the best I can tell you is same with religion. I use the term now, um, I'm an optimistic agnostic. I have no clue, no clue whatsoever, but I would love to believe that we have souls. I would love to believe that, you know, something basic within all these religions may have merit. And heck, I think the world would be far more interesting if there were ghosts running around. So uh, I would love to see one, but uh, haven't. Like you said, uh, belief is the word that we have to use because we don't really have evidence. I mean, there are so many television programs out there about ghost hunting and they come up with nothing. Oh, maybe this needle moved a little bit or didn't you think it was kind of cold in this corner? Ooh, maybe. And then because they've already taken on so many of the elements of the the meta narrative of ghosts, which is, oh, EMP fields and cold spots and this and this and this, that they, it's very easy for them to sort of psych themselves out. So if you've ever suffered through one of these television programs, it really is like watching people, like when I'm feeling generous towards the people uh, who are doing the quote investigating, I feel like I'm watching people try and recapture and or hold on to their youthful anything goes attitude towards the world, which is kind of lovely. And then when I they annoy me, I think these guys are just lost. <laughs> you know, they, oh, was that, was that a ghost? No, it was your guy. The ghost is wearing the same clothes as your cameraman. We saw him set up the tripod and then walk along. You know what I mean? Like it, they're trying so hard to believe like Fox Mulder that um, it almost gets in the way of legitimate investigative techniques. Yeah, and it's lovely what you said that to holding on to kind of that youthful exuberance and belief. And and I mean, more power to people uh, who are able to do that. I, I think we do have to be careful about being, you know, super dismissive in the end, because if you really boil it all down, really boil it all down. This existence, where we are, what we are, what's going on, everything we experience, it's still some grand mystery. We haven't got this figured out. We have no idea why we're here, how we're here. You know, we get all this big bang theory and, but then, you know, next thing you know, it is it a reverberating universe. I often refer sometimes to, you know, these, these, uh, high level, um, astrophysicists, theoretical astrophysicists. And I was reading a article about one, you know, a group who are hypothesizing that it would be easy for there to be um, parallel universes and there would be an infinite number of parallel universes. And each universe would only 
differ from the next universe over by one subatomic particle. And I'm reading this and I'm going, wait a minute, this is no more hard science, hard uh, experience than believing in a various religions or ghosts or whatever uh, like that. Well, kind of. Uh, up to a certain point, there there is something interesting about the multiple universe theory, which is that there are a number of mathematical issues within the Schrodinger equation and some of the quantum physics things out there. And the only way that the paradoxes or the seeming paradoxes, because I maintain there are no paradoxes in nature, you're just you're just perceiving it wrong or framing it wrong. The only way that those paradoxes get resolved is through this interpretation, which is that every time a quote-unquote decision is made, and that's the word that we'll use, and the wave function collapses and reality goes one way or another, the particle goes left or right, it, it behaves like a wave or a particle, the only way that it makes sense in the math is if at the moment of, let's call it choice, another probability splits off and substantiates or actualizes to some extent. So that's actually where the multiple universe theory comes from, is, is there is a little bit of a scientific basis to it. Though, I think you could argue that religions way back when would have said the same thing. Yeah, guess what? We killed a goat and it rained and we needed the rain. So clearly cause and effect, right? Right. And, and the other thing to remind ourselves, though, when we get hyper-scientific is it's this same brain that's created all that science. It's created all that math. And it probably is flawed because this is a flawed device that we're using. Once again, we're using this device to interpret existence, not as is, but as a manageable form, as something that we can use, that we can exist in. But the flip side is, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking also about the fact the flip side is, if we finally can demonstrate a ghost, unequivocally demonstrate a ghost. Well, on one level, it really has a lot of implications about life after death, doesn't it? But beyond that, all of a sudden, it becomes a science. It's no longer paranormal. It's no longer, it's a science. That's something we can measure. That's something that we can, you know, test and hypothesize about. So it's funny, those dynamics, just like, you know, Schrodinger's box or whatever, it flips immediately if, if it's seen. Yes, uh, absolutely so. And yet I will, I will argue that the pseudoscientific community, especially the people out there pushing garbage like colloidal silver and, you know, ivermectin and drinking bleach and all these other things that just by, by chance on my website, I happen to sell this stuff for a rather high price and all this pseudo-medicine and all the rest out there, that, that is very often the argument they make, which is that, well, you know, everything was nonsense until it wasn't. And, it, and it's a tough one. So as a, as a person who is from the scientific community and who is a not just a medical professional, but a neurosurgeon, it doesn't get much more detail-oriented than that, I think we can say. How do you parse that? How do you not get too skeptical? Because, yeah, we don't know everything, and yet just because we don't know everything doesn't mean we know nothing, and it doesn't mean that literally anything goes. Yeah, I think uh, clearly we have to go by the science as is, recognizing that science is imperfect. 
and I think, you know, one of the, for example, during the pandemic, uh, where we kind of fell down uh, when it came to things like the vaccine and uh, and all was we, uh, or the masks, for example, even early on, are you supposed to wear a mask? Are you not? Are you supposed to wash your, you know, your, your packages from Amazon? One of the things that we failed at, I think, was conveying that this is a brand new disease. Science is marvelous at a lot of things and has allowed us, you know, to develop amazing technologies and allow us to live beyond our 40s and all that sort of thing. But there's always plenty of stuff that we don't know. And this is a brand new disease assaulting us. And we aren't going to know everything in the first few weeks. And we're going to have to make uh, educated guesses uh, as we go along until we start amassing the knowledge that we need to make more definitive statements. And I'm afraid the messaging got mixed up and then let, you know, all this this pseudoscience come pouring in. Uh, and, and that was destructive. I mean, it, plenty of lives were lost. So I think you know, when dealing with the real world and car accidents and aneurysms and the awful diseases, I think we do have to uh, depend on the scientific world as best we can and go with the real science, just admitting to ourselves that it is not perfect. And actually the base element of all of science is really scientific skepticism. It's to always call in the question, what we consider is dogma, what we consider is proven. We'll still go back over and, and challenge it. And we find this in medicine all the time something that we believed strongly in 30 years ago. Now it may be the opposite, but that doesn't give the right to just throw anything at it. All of that was based on science to begin with as well. And then as we learn more, we adjust. So yeah, I, I think we do have to very much revert to what we've got, what we've got logged in uh, and we have to leave the the oh I don't know the again the fantastical out of the equation now if a patient's family around a patient in the ICU who is in coma said will you pray with us I of course would say yes it's also like uh, there are no atheists and foxholes I've been in the middle of a brain that is going south you know and going if somebody's out there could you please lend me a hand. We, we walk that fine line, but ultimately we have to go with what we call evidence-based medicine. You know, what is the latest evidence that we have? What's the quality of the evidence? And, you know, we're going to go with as good a quality evidence as we can. And you can throw all the pseudoscience uh, you want at us. But, it, you know, then we're doing the patient a disservice. Well, uh, the truth of the matter is I can talk about this stuff all day long, uh, but hey, we're out of time. Uh, my guest today has been Gary R. Simmons. He is a neurosurgeon, an educator, a writer, a speaker, and he has written a novel called Death's Pale Flag, which explores uh, maybe that netherworld around the bridge between life and death and science and the unknown and perhaps what we might call the paranormal um, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's absolutely my honor. And I agree with you. I could talk about this stuff all day, probably talk too much about it. But uh, as you can see, it's definitely a passion. Yeah, for sure. Uh, make sure to check out his book. 
Uh, there is a link in the episode notes as well as to his own homepage. Uh, and if you're uh, interested in becoming a neurosurgical resident and would like to learn how to avoid burnout, um, he's also written things on that and a number of other things as well. Thank you again for coming on the uh, podcast, sir. And thank you everybody out there for listening. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>